You're listening to the Bloodroot Podcast, the show that empowers listeners to explore the deep roots of their family history by preserving stories, advocating truth, restoring context, and fostering healing. I'm your host, Sherry Daniels. Welcome to episode three of the Bloodroot Podcast. On today's episode, The Mantle Clock and Breakfast with John Hunt Morgan. In episode two, I cover the story of some missing and later misattributed letters from the Civil War. The author of the letters never joined my family in any legal capacity, and in fact, faded from our family narrative to such an extent that the rediscovery was a complete surprise. But one little nugget that I gave you mentioned my second great-grandmother, Mary Ann Hill. While Mary seemed to be a rather normal character in our family tree, there was a favorite story told to us by a cousin that was attached to a family heirloom. Yes, this story also connected to the Civil War, and it set my romantic imaginations into overdrive for many years, until the analytical part of my brain steamrolled right over that romantic fantasy. The original story came to us from a cousin named Maddie Daniels Townsend, who grew up in the Columbus, Ohio area. For those familiar with the family line, she was the daughter of William Daniels, brother of my great-grandfather Clyde. As a descendant of the Daniels family, she had several items from this branch that she had wanted to pass along to a surviving member of our male Daniels line. Little did she know that the female line would be way more excited about these family keepsakes. In time, she found my dad through some cousin connections in the 1980s and got them to him. Growing up, I was always aware of the paper items, such as the Daniels family Bible pages that go back to our original ancestor from Massachusetts, John Daniels, who settled in Pennsylvania just below Pittsburgh around 1800. These Bible pages are pure family gold, and as soon as the internet was invented, I was scanning and sharing these records far and wide. But also among the hall of family goods was a family heirloom in the form of a mantle clock. Until my parents built their house in 2003, complete with fireplace and mantle, this clock took shelter in several basements as we moved over the years. I remember it very dusty with a wooden panel rubber banded to the front in order to keep the glass from breaking. It had not functioned in years, and to be honest, it still does not function. But all of the wooden gears and inner workings were inside, along with a sun-shaped pendulum and heavy metal weights. Some well-meaning previous owner had painted over the wood in a dark maroon hue, probably to disguise the fact that it had lost some veneer over the years. And on the back, there were notes written to record the various years when the clock was repaired. The lineage of repairs made include E. Thorpe in 1875, M. E. Montgomery in 1908 and 1912, and finally, my great-grandfather Clyde Daniels in 1925 and 1929. I can attest that my great-grandfather was not a clockmaker nor professional tinkerer, but he was a railroad man by profession, and these repairs signaled to me that he was somewhat mechanically minded in order to repair such an intricate and delicate piece of machinery. came with another legendary family story. 
It was said to have come from the farm that Madison and Mary Daniels had made their home on for decades, and more importantly, sitting on the fireplace mantle during the Civil War when General John Hunt Morgan and his men were making headway into Ohio. Just before their capture, Morgan's men spread out along the areas near the river, separating into small foraging groups, taking what they needed. As a raiding party in enemy territory, any farm chosen for such ransacking would have been in danger of further harm without capitulation. According to the details of this story, Grandma Mary voluntarily invited the invading men inside and fixed them a big breakfast, which left them full, satisfied, and grateful enough to leave the Daniels household largely intact. We also made the assumption that Grandma Mary did this because her husband was a Union soldier and might have been even more afraid of repercussions. Cool story. But, and that's a big but, if you've been keeping track from episode two, you would know that this series of events does not pass the timeline test. Before we get into the family details that derail this beloved family story, I'm going to take a moment and fill you in on John Hunt Morgan. For those of you not familiar with Ohio Valley Civil War history, John Hunt Morgan was a larger-than-life Confederate general who wreaked havoc on both sides of the Ohio River, fighting and raiding in a manner that resembled guerrilla warfare. Anyone with Civil War-era ancestors from the Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio areas have more than likely heard of this general for many reasons. Not only were families scared of his raiding parties, but those with Confederate ties regarded him as a hero. He gained legendary stature as a Robin Hood-like figure, and many claimed their Kentucky Confederate ancestors were members of Morgan's men. Some of their family stories may be true simply because of a technicality. As command of several Confederate unions in Kentucky floundered, they were absorbed into his ranks, which grew, sometimes in name only. But in many cases, the stories were just stories, and merely a desire to connect their ancestor to a well-known historical figure. To this day, in my neck of the Kentucky woods, John Hunt Morgan is still revered by many, while being despised by others in the surrounding region. As they say, it's complicated, especially in the Ohio Valley. The reality about John Hunt Morgan is that he was born in Alabama in 1825, but grew up in the central part of Kentucky, namely Lexington. And after attending Transylvania College, which is now Transylvania University, he joined the military and fought in the Mexican-American War. He was an enslaver of many and a farmer from a very wealthy family. And he was even said to have fathered children with the enslaved women in his household. His Civil War years were spent fighting and then raiding communities along the border to instill fear, create military diversions, and disrupt supply lines. On a side note, if you want a really great research rabbit hole, go research the woman Sarah E. Thompson. She was the Union spy who brought down this famed guerrilla fighter. And indeed, after her identification of him while in Tennessee, he was apparently shot in the back. Turns out, this wily soldier who never played by the rules had escaped one too many times, and someone from behind was nipping that right in the bud. If you decide to read about this woman and the event that followed, you can access her diary online, but... 
As a University of Kentucky graduate, it pains me to tell you that Duke University has her papers, which detail this amazing chapter of the story. It appears that they have digitized some of her collection, and I will post a link in the episode guide on my website for further great reading. Now, back to our clock story. One day, when I was relating the story to another family member, I had an out-of-research experience. You know that feeling when you've been researching a line and can recite the facts you've gathered with your eyes closed at the drop of a hat, and suddenly your own litany hits a snag? You can actually see from outside the research realm, from up above, catching something you had not caught before, and it stops you dead in your tracks, usually mid-story. What snags you is a detail or timeline element that does not make sense when relating the overall narrative, which is why this practice of reciting the family narrative is super important to our research process. In fact, I'll give a shout out to a DNA cousin of mine, Mark Lowe. He tells folks to slow down, to mull and ponder the facts they've collected, as it helps us analyze the big picture to identify problems and give us directions for where to go next. So, slow down and tell that family story over and over. It is well worth the time spent. And to recap, our narrative in this case included this brave woman, Mary Ann Hill Daniels, an Ohio Yankee girl serving up breakfast to a group of hostile Confederate soldiers during the raiding parties of General John Hunt Morgan. Her husband was a Union soldier away during the fighting, and she was left at home to take care of the family farm. But upon closer inspection there were quite a few elements of the story that cannot be true. Okay, so here's the hard part. How do we determine which parts are true and which are twisted to create a wonderful but embellished or false story? Let's timeline this to test its mettle. First up, the parts we know that are true. Let's start with the clock itself. Is it old enough to have been in existence during the Civil War? That is the first heirloom question you should ask yourself when recording a story that surrounds an object. Luckily, there is a wonderful and quite ornate manufacturer's label inside the lower body of the clock. It was made by a company out of Connecticut with proprietors Chauncey Boardman and Joseph A. Wells. After researching the clockmakers and their various models, it would appear that this one was made around 1845, which fits our timeline perfectly if albeit 20 years or so before the story and very close to the birth date of Mary. This mentally shifts the story a bit. It makes me question who the original owner might have been. Could they have bought it secondhand? Sure. Or did they buy this brand new and I need to look at the previous generation for potential connection to the story? How about Morgan's raid into Southern Ohio? After some research, yes. His men did go through this part of Gallia County, but they did so in the summer of 1863. Those of you who listened to episode two will remember that Madison was actually unmarried in 1863 and did not muster in until late summer of 1864. In other words, Madison and Mary were not in the same household in 1863. This is our biggest obstacle for the story. And there are a few alternatives I could surmise to account for the errors. Was the story about Madison's mother and not Mary? 
Was the clock simply in the Daniels household, and it was another woman who made the men breakfast? A sister, perhaps. He did have a sister named Mary. Or was the clock in the Hill family household, also of Gallia County, on their mantle when Marianne Hill made them breakfast? Mary would have been about 18 years of age when the men came through the area, so she could have made them breakfast. But we have to consider whether it was her mother who did the cooking instead. Once I considered her mother as a possibility, I took a closer look at Mary and her family. When one hears such a story, we have a tendency to take it at face value and sometimes attribute intent that may not be there. Our family seemed to add the portion about Mary being afraid of the men with her husband fighting for the union. We took one segment of Madison's history and piggybacked it onto the clock breakfast story. Danger, Will Robinson. We must remind ourselves to slow down and dissect family stories, just like we preach about the importance of DNA results reliant upon the document trail. So, too, should family stories always be vetted alongside the document trail. So, what did I find out about Mary and her family that made this story much more controversial? As I knew the Daniels family was from Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts, I had to remind myself something that I had already researched and documented. While Mary was born in Vinton County, Ohio, her father was born in North Carolina and her mother in Virginia. While the Daniels branch of the family was one we were proud of due to Madison's service in the Union Army, this Southern affiliation had not been picked up by the repeated narrative. We had let the proud portions overshadow the uncomfortable or contradictory portions of the story. Because, let's face an awkward truth. If Mary Ann Hill fixed breakfast for Morgan's men in her parents' house, it was more than likely not out of fear, but out of sympathy and support. Or am I reaching too far for a motive? Was my great-great-grandmother a Southern sympathizer, aiding the enemy forces? Very possible. But then, she also married a Yankee after the war, so she couldn't have been too Southern to avoid such a union. On a side note, there is an unconfirmed online rumor about her uncle being a Confederate captain in Missouri. Curiouser and curiouser, Mary. I love how messy our family history truly is once we start peeling back the layers. other stories my dad remembers was that during Morgan's raid into this county, someone in the family had been hiding under a bridge as the troops rode over, but no other details were given. We had attributed this story to Madison, but upon reflection, we did not have any further details. Were they hiding from Confederate or Union troops? We're not sure. Whenever dad tells this part of the story, I always ask, you know, that was a scene in Gone with the Wind. Are you sure this is a story from the family? He insists it is, and I can't say how this detail might fit into this story, but it demonstrates how turbulent these times were, especially when an invading army was ransacking the local farms. The Daniels men had not yet joined the army, but interestingly enough, again, citing episode two, just after Cynthia Lowe's letter of July 5th, 1863, John Hunt Morgan and his men came roaring into Ohio by July 13th. 
It took him a little while to get into the Gallia County area, but taking into consideration this invasion with the fact that Madison and his brothers joined up by late summer the following year, Morgan's proximity and local damage in the summer of 1863 had to have made an impact on Madison and his brother's determination to fight in the war. But I'm not going to glorify their service by saying the incursion had a direct effect, because obviously it took over a year for them to sign up. Not exactly a fire in the britches, huh? Plus, in Cynthia's second letter, she stated that she had no idea Madison was thinking of joining the army only that she knew he would have voted for Old Abe. So this seems like he wasn't exactly vocal about it. Or just not vocal around women. Or around the woman he was courting. Or one of the women he was courting. <laughs> I digress. Before we wrap things up, I'd like to look at one other aspect of this story. Who told us the story? As I mentioned earlier, it was Cousin Maddie, which means we have to consider how far removed she was from the event. Well, she was not an eyewitness, and the woman who supposedly made and served the breakfast was her grandmother. So we're looking at two generations removed from the participant or witness to the event. However, Maddie knew her grandmother and probably quite well. Maddie's mother died when she was young and her father William moved into his mother's home in Porter, Ohio at some point. I haven't identified the exact time just yet, but at least by 1920 and possibly around the time of his father's death in 1913, meaning that Maddie more than likely lived in the same house as her grandmother for a few years prior to her marriage. Even as she did not grow up there, her father lived there well up into his old age so she must have visited often, perhaps so much so that she was entrusted with many of the family heirlooms, including the stories. I think it highly probable that she heard this story directly from the mouth of her grandmother, Marianne Hill Daniels, and maybe more than once since Mary did not die until 1934. If Mary was repeating the story to her grandchildren, it sounds like she was pretty proud of this past event. For me, that's a powerful inference as to the true chef who fixed up breakfast that July morning of 1863. Today's poetry gem is entitled To Mary by William Wordsworth. Let other bards of angels sing, bright suns without a spot, but thou art no such perfect thing. Rejoice that thou art not. Such if thou wert in all men's view, a universal show, what would my fancy have to do, my feelings to bestow? The world denies that thou art fair, so Mary, let it be, if not in loveliness compare with what thou art to me. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to the Bloodroot Podcast, written and produced by your host, Sherry Daniels. For more information, please visit my website at genealogyliteracy.com forward slash bloodroot. If you have a question that needs answering, a topic that needs to be covered, or a story to share, send me an email or direct message me via my social media accounts. If you have the Anchor app, you can leave me a voice message that may be included in a future episode. The platform used to produce this podcast was Anchor with music provided by Anchor and Purple Planet. 
Again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for a quick peek at our next episode. Next time on the Bloodroot Podcast, trauma and perspective, including domestic violence in the family narrative. Be sure to tune in next time as I unpack a few more family stories that help us explore the multi-layered impacts of domestic violence on our ancestors, ourselves, and the family narrative.